Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. This podcast is being recorded as the Russian invasion of Ukraine enters its third week. Militarily, the war is characterized by two primary factors, the glacial pace of the Russian advance and the relentless bombardment into rubble of the Ukrainian villages, towns, and cities that are putting up such fierce resistance against the invader. This has upset certain journalistic calculations. At the end of the first week of the war, reporters started heading to Odessa on the Black Sea coast, west of the Crimean Peninsula. It's clear Vladimir Putin wants to gain control of all of Ukraine's Black Sea coastal area, and Odessa is the jewel in the crown. But stubborn resistance in the town of Mykolaiv, which stands between Crimea and Odessa, means the jewel has yet to face the expected onslaught, which has given me plenty of time to think about the city. My family has roots there. My father's paternal grandfather hailed from Odessa, and from an early age I was told of the connection. Part of my identity is being an Odessan Jew, a very particular identity in the Jewish diaspora. Odessa was founded as an open city by Catherine the Great, and Jews flocked there. They had more freedom than in the tiny shtetls, and with that freedom developed a blasphemous sense of humor and became more secular and political. In my last podcast, I spoke at length with Tom Duvall about Putin making 21st century war for 19th century reasons. Tom also has some family roots in Odessa. His family, the Efrusis, controlled the grain trade that in the 19th century made the city rich and his family stupendously wealthy. So much wheat is grown in Ukraine so much. A huge supply chain brought steady loads from the interior down to Odessa where it was put on ships and sailed across the Black Sea, down the Bosporus to the Mediterranean and on, on to the Middle East, to southern Italy and then up into Europe. Odessa's faded beauty is a testament to those days of wealth. My own people were of a much more humble background. Anyway, another thing the slowing down of the war has allowed time for is to marvel that the country's heroic president, Volodymyr Zelensky, is a Jew. The idea that a Jew could be elected president of Ukraine is pretty astonishing, although not entirely surprising. A few years ago, I made a documentary for the BBC World Service about reviving Jewish life in the country, as well as my family's roots there. And you can listen to it at the FRDH website, www.goldfarbpod.com. And while you're there, please make a donation. It really does help me keep this podcast going. I went to Odessa to do some reporting for the piece, and yes, I loved the place. Anyway, I wanted to do a podcast about Odessa, Ukraine's Jewish president, and decided that rather than write an essay, I would read one of Isaac Babel's stories about the place. Babel was a Jewish Odessan, born in 1894, when the city was part of the Russian Empire. He was swallowed up by the fate of the country, pogroms, Bolshevik revolution, civil war, Stalin, who executed him in 1940. The story of my dovecote, written in 1925, is from the collection Odessa Stories. Like all good tales from this city, it's a bit of a shaggy dog story, but stay with it, and I think you'll be amazed at the relevance it has for today.
When I was a child, I really wanted a dovecote. I never felt a stronger desire in all my life. I was nine years old when my father promised to give me the money for some planks and three pairs of doves. That was back in 1904. I was studying for the entrance exams to the preparatory class at the Nikolaev Secondary School. My family lived in Nikolaev in the Kherson province. There's no such province now. Our city's part of the Odessa district. I was only nine years old, and the prospect of the exams terrified me. I couldn't afford to get anything less than perfect marks on both Russian language and mathematics. The Jewish quota at our school was tough, only 5%. That meant that out of the 40 boys admitted to the preparatory class, only two could be Jews. And the devilish questions the teachers would pose to us Jewish boys, no one got trickier questions. That's why my father promised to buy me doves, only on the condition that I score top marks, perfect fives, with pluses no less. He put me through hell, and I fell into an endless waking dream, a child's long dream of despair, and though I went off to the exams wrapped in this dream, I still did better than the others. I had a gift for learning. No matter how tricky the teacher got, they couldn't deny that I had brains and a voracious memory. I had a gift for learning and scored two fives. But then everything changed. Kareton Efrusi, the grain merchant who exported wheat to Marseille, slipped the school a 500-ruble bribe on behalf of his son, and one of my fives acquired a minus, and my place at the school went to Efrusi Jr., my father nearly lost his mind. From the time I turned six, he'd been cramming my head with every kind of learning imaginable. That minus business drove him to the brink of despair. He wanted to beat up a frusi or to hire a couple of stevedores to do the job. But mother talked him out of it, and I started preparing for the following year's exam to get into first form. Conspiring behind my back, my family goaded my tutor into covering both the prep and first-year courses in the same year, and since we were completely desperate, I memorized three books. These books were Smirnovsky's Grammar, Yevtushevsky's Mathematical Problems, and Putsikovich's Introduction to Russian History. Children aren't taught from these books any longer, but I got them by heart, line by line, and the following year, taking the Russian language exam with schoolmaster Karavayev, I attained the unattainable five-plus. Karavayev was a ruddy, indignant fellow who'd been a student in Moscow. He was barely thirty. A blush bloomed on his manly cheeks, like the blush on the faces of peasant lads, and he had a wart on one of those cheeks, from which sprang a tuft of ash-gray feline hair. The other person presiding over the exam was Deputy Warden Pyatnitsky, an important personage both at the school and in the province. The Deputy Warden asked me about Peter the Great, and I experienced a sense of utter oblivion, a sense that the end was near, that an abyss had opened before me, a sun-baked abyss lined with delight and despair. I'd learned by heart what Putsukovich's book had to say about Peter the Great, as well as what Pushkin had put into verse, and I recited those verses in violent sobs, while human faces cascaded into my eyes, shifting about like fresh decks of cards. The faces kept getting shuffled in the depths of my eyes, while I stood there trembling, straightening my back, hurriedly shouting Pushkin's verses with all my might.
I shouted and shouted for a long time, with no one putting a stop to my mad rambling. All I saw through my crimson blindness, through the sense of freedom that had come over me, was Pietnitsky's old face bending towards me with its silvery beard. He didn't interrupt me and made only a single comment to Karavayev, who was delighted for me and for Pushkin. "'What a people, these yids of yours!' the old man whispered. "'They're possessed, I tell you.' And when I stopped, he said, "'Well done, little friend. Off you go. Tell your father that you've been accepted into the first form.' And I ran home to our shop. In our shop, a peasant customer sat scratching his head, frozen with indecision. As soon as he caught sight of me, father abandoned the peasant and demanded I tell him the whole story. He believed every word without a moment's hesitation. Shouting to the clerk to close up the shop, he ran off to Sobornaya Street to buy me a hat with the school emblem. Poor mother barely managed to free me from this madman's grip. She said that the newspapers would announce the names of all the boys accepted to the secondary school, that God would punish us, and that people would laugh at us if we bought a uniform ahead of time. Mother was pale. She was interrogating fate in my eyes, gazing at me with bitter pity as if I were a cripple, because she alone knew just how unlucky our family was. All the men in our line were too trusting, too liable to act without thinking, and we had no luck at all. My grandfather had once been a rabbi in Belayatserkov, but they drove him out for blasphemy, and he lived another forty years in loud disgrace and poverty, learning foreign languages, and then began going mad in his eightieth year. Uncle Lev, father's brother, had studied at the yeshiva in Volozhin. In 1892, he escaped conscription and abducted the daughter of a quartermaster serving in the Kiev military district. Uncle Lev took this woman to California, to Los Angeles, abandoned her there, and died in a madhouse among Negroes and Malays. That left only mad Uncle Simon, who lived in Odessa, father and me. But father was too trusting. He offended people with the raptures of first love, and they never forgive him for this, deceiving him mercilessly. So father came to believe that his life was governed by some malicious fate, an enigmatic creature that dogged his every step and with which he had nothing in common. And so, out of all the men in my family, mother had no one but me. Like all Jews, I was small and frail, and my head ached from too much learning. Mother saw all this clearly. She had never been blinded by her husband's beggarly pride, his strange belief that our family would someday be stronger and richer than others in this world. She didn't expect any success, was afraid to buy me a uniform ahead of time, and only allowed a large portrait of me to be taken at the photographer's. On 20th September, 1905, a list of the boys admitted into the first form was posted at the secondary school. My name was among them. All my relatives showed up to have a look at that paper, and even Shoyle, my great-uncle, tramped over to the school. I loved that sly old braggart because he sold fish at the market. His fleshy hands were moist, coated in fish scales, and smelt of marvelous cold worlds. Shoyle also differed from ordinary people by virtue of his tall tales about the Polish uprising of 1861. Back in the old days, Shoyle had been an innkeeper in Skvira. He saw the soldiers of Nicholas I shoot Count Godlewski and other Polish insurgents dead. Or maybe he didn't. 
I now know that Shoyle was nothing but an old ignoramus and a naive liar, but I've never forgotten those tales of his. They were good. And so even foolish Shoyle tramped over to the school to read the list with my name on it, and in the evening he danced and stomped around at our impoverished ball. In his great joy, father arranged a ball and invited all his associates, the grain merchants, the estate brokers, and the traveling salesmen who sold agricultural machinery in our district. They sold their machines to any and everyone, these salesmen. They were a regular terror to peasants and landowners. You just couldn't get rid of them without buying something. These traveling salesmen are the shrewdest and liveliest of all the Jews. That evening they sang Hasidic songs, which were made up of only three words, but dragged on and on with lots of funny inflections. Only those who have celebrated Passover with the Hasidim, or spent time in their noisy synagogues in Bolin, can recognize the beauty of those inflections. And old Lieberman, who taught me Hebrew and the Torah, he was also there. Monsieur Lieberman, my family called him. That evening he drank more Bessarabian wine than he should have. The traditional silk tassels slipped out from under his red vest, and he raised a toast in my honor in Hebrew. The old man congratulated my parents in his toast, saying that I had defeated all my enemies at the exam. I had defeated those Russian boys with their fat cheeks, as well as the son of our own rich Bulgarians. It was thus that David, king of the Jews, had defeated Goliath in ancient times, and just as I had triumphed over Goliath, so too would our people, by the power of our minds, vanquish our enemies who now surround us, thirsting for our blood. Monsieur Lieberman said all this, and broke out in tears, then drank more wine as he wept and shouted, Vivat! The guests pulled him into their circle and led him through an old-fashioned quadrille, as at a shtetl wedding. Everyone had a grand time at our ball, and even Mother had a sip, though she didn't like vodka and didn't understand how anyone could. This is why she considered all Russians crazy and didn't understand how women could live with Russian husbands. But our truly happy days were yet to come. For mother, they came when she started making me sandwiches before I left for school each morning, when we went from shop to shop buying my festive supplies, a pencil box, a piggy bank, a satchel, new pasteboard-bound textbooks and notebooks and glossy wrappers. No one responds to the newness of new things like children. They shudder at the smell of them, like dogs on a hare's trail, and experience a kind of madness that later, as adults, we come to call inspiration. And this pure, childlike sense of ownership over new things spread to mother as well. It took us a whole month to get used to the pencil box and to the early morning gloom when I'd drink tea at the edge of the big, brightly lit table and pack my books in my satchel. It took us a whole month to get used to our happy life, and it was only after the first quarter was over that I remembered about the doves. Everything was in place, ready and waiting, the ruble and a half for the birds, as well as the dovecoat, which old Shoyle had built from a wooden crate. The dovecoat was painted brown. It had nests for twelve pairs of doves, slats of various widths on the roof, and a special grating I came up with myself, which would make it easier to lure strays. Everything was prepared. 
On Sunday, 20 October, I started out for the market on Ochatnitsky Square, but I ran into some unexpected obstacles. The story I'm telling here, that is, the story of my enrollment in the first form of secondary school, took place in the autumn of 1905. Tsar Nicholas was about to grant the Russian people a constitution, and orators in worn-out coats kept clambering up onto podiums in front of the city council to make their speeches. There was shooting in the streets at night, and Mother wouldn't let me go to the market. On the morning of 20 October, the neighborhood boys were flying a kite right in front of the police station, and our water carrier, neglecting his duties, strolled up and down the street, red-faced and pomaded. Then we saw the sons of the baker, Kalistov, drag a leather vaulting horse out into the road and start doing gymnastics. No one interfered, and the policeman, Samirnikov, even egged them on, telling them to jump higher. Samirnikov wore a homespun silk waist sash that day, and his boots were polished as they had never been polished before. It was the sight of the policeman out of uniform that really frightened Mother. That's why she wouldn't let me go. But I sneaked out into the street through the backyards and ran to the market, which is all the way down by the railway station. I found Ivan Nikodimich, the dove seller, in his usual place at the market. As soon as I got to the old man, I bought a pair of cherry-red doves with tattered, colorful tails and a pair of crested ones, putting them in a bag under my shirt. I had forty kopecks left after the purchase, but the old man wouldn't sell me a breeding pair of Kriukov doves for that price. What I liked about Kriukov doves was their beaks, short, sandy, friendly. Forty kopecks was a fair offer, but the hunter set a high price and diverted his yellow face, at the end of the trading day, seeing that there were no other takers, Ivan Nikodimich called me over. Everything went my way, and it all went badly. Sometime before noon, perhaps a little later, a man in felt boots walked across the square. He stepped lightly on swollen legs, lively eyes burning in his haggard face. Ivan Nikodimich, pack up your wares. The Jerusalem grandees are getting themselves a constitution up in town. Old man Babel caught his death at the fish market on Ridnaya. He said this and stepped off lightly between the cages, like a barefoot plowman along a boundary path. Shame, Ivan Nikodimich muttered behind the man's back. Shame, he shouted more sternly then, and handed me the Kriukov doves for forty kopecks. I hid them in my shirt and gaped at the people fleeing the market. The market was empty now, and shots rang out nearby. I took off running towards the station, crossed the square, which flipped upside down in my eyes, and flew into a deserted alley trodden with yellow earth. At the end of the alley sat legless Makarenko, who rolled through the city in his wheelchair and sold cigarettes from a tray. The boys on our street bought cigarettes from him, all the kids liked him, and I rushed towards him. Makarenko, I said, struggling to catch my breath, and patted the legless man on the shoulder. Have you seen Shoil? The cripple kept silent. His rough face, made of red fat, of fists of iron, glowed from within. He was fidgeting in his chair with excitement, while his wife, Katyusha, her cotton-clad backside turned towards me, was picking through things that lay strewn on the ground. What have you got? The legless man asked and recoiled from the woman, as if he knew that he'd find her answer unbearable. 
Fourteen gators, Katusha replied without straightening her back. Six coverlets. Now let me count these here bonnets. Bonnets? Katerina, I tell you, God must have chosen me to pay for the sins of others. People are carrying off whole bolts of linen. People are making out fine. And what do we get? Bonnets? And indeed, at that very moment, a woman with a flushed, beautiful face came running down the alley. She held an armful of fezes in one hand and a bolt of cloth in the other. The woman called out to her missing children in a joyous, desperate voice. A silk dress and a light blue blouse streamed behind her gliding body, and she paid no attention to Makarenko, who went rolling after her in his chair. The legless man couldn't catch up to her. His wheels rattled, and he worked his levers with all his might. Madamochka! Where'd you get the calico, Madamochka? But the woman with the gliding dress was gone. A wobbly cart came flying around the corner where she had turned. A peasant lad was standing upright in the cart. Where'd everyone run off to? On Sobornaya, Makarenko answered imploringly. They're all down on Sobornaya, dear boy. Whatever you can grab, you just bring it to me. I'll buy everything. The boy leant over the front of his cart and lashed his piebald nags. The horses leapt up in their filthy cruppers like calves and set off at a gallop. The yellow alley was once again yellow and deserted. Then the legless man turned his dim eyes on me. What am I? God's chosen, he said lifelessly. What am I? The son of man. And Makarenko stretched a leprous hand towards me. "'What have you got in that sack there?' he said, grabbing the bag that had warmed my heart. The cripple riffled through the doves with a fleshy hand, pulling out a female. The bird lay flat on his palm, its feet in the air. "'Doves,' Makarenko said, and rolled closer to me on squeaking wheels. "'Doves!' and slapped me across the face. He swiped me hard with the hand holding the dove. Katusha's cotton-clad backside flipped over before my eyes, and I fell to the ground in my new overcoat. Gotta stamp out their seed. Can't stand their seed and their stinking men. She had more to say about our seed, but I was no longer listening. I lay on the ground, the crushed bird's innards sliding from my temple. They ran down my cheek winding, dribbling, and blinding me. The dove's tender guts slipped down my forehead, and I shut my only unplastered eye so that I wouldn't have to see the world laid bare before me. This world was small and terrible. There was a pebble lying in front of me, a jagged pebble, like the face of an old woman with a large jaw, and a piece of string and a clump of feathers still breathing. My world was small and terrible. I shut my eyes so that I wouldn't have to see it, and pressed myself into the earth, which lay beneath me in soothing silence. This trodden earth had nothing in common with our lives, nothing in common with the anticipation of exams in our lives. Somewhere far away, disaster galloped along this very earth on a big horse, but the sound of its hooves was growing weaker, vanishing and calmness, that bitter calmness that sometimes comes over children during calamities, suddenly obliterated the boundary between my body and the unmoving earth. The earth smelt of damp inner depths, of the grave, of flowers. I sensed its smell and wept without fear. I walked down an unfamiliar street, cluttered with white boxes, walked alone, 
adorned in bloody feathers. Down pavements swept as clean as if it were Sunday, and wept more bitterly, fully, and joyously than I would ever weep again in all my life. Whitened wires buzzed up above. A mongrel ran ahead of me, and in an alley off to the side, a young peasant in a waistcoat was smashing a window frame at Cariton Efrusi's house. He was smashing the frame with a wooden mallet, putting his whole body into it, breathing deeply and beaming in all directions with the kindly smile of drunkenness, sweat, and hardiness of spirit. The whole street resounded with the crunch, the crack, the singing of splintering wood. The fellow was smashing the frame for no other reason than to bend his back, work up a sweat, and shout unusual words in an unknown non-Russian language. He kept shouting those words, and singing, his blue eyes bursting from within until a religious procession appeared in the street coming from the direction of the city council. Old men with dyed beards carried a portrait of the Tsar, with hair neatly parted, banners depicting sepulchral saints fluttered over their heads, and enkindled old women dashed ahead, catching sight of the procession. The fellow in the waistcoat pressed his mallet to his chest and took off running after the banners. I waited for the procession to pass and made my way back to our house. It was empty. Its white doors stood open, the grass in front of the dovecote was all trampled. There was no one in the courtyard but Kuzma. Kuzma, our yard-keeper, sat in his shed, laying out dead shoil. Look what they went and did. They chopped down our old man. Kuzma snuffled then, turned away, and pulled a perch out of the old man's fly. They'd stuck two perches in the old man, one in his fly and the other in his mouth, and though the old man was dead, one of the perches was still alive and quivering. Didn't chop no one down but the old man here, Kuzma said, tossing the perches to the cat. He cursed them all through and through, them and their goddamn mothers. A swell old man. You ought to go and find coins for his eyes. But back then, at the age of ten, I had no clue why the dead might need coins. Kuzma, I whispered, save us. And I walked up to the yardkeeper, wrapped my arms around his old crooked back with its lopsided shoulders, and saw old Shoyle from behind that back. Shoyle was lying in sawdust, his chest crushed, his beard jutting up with a pair of broken-down shoes on his bare feet. His parted legs were dirty, purple, dead. Kuzma bustled around them. He bound the old man's jaws and kept trying to find something else he could do for him. He kept bustling about as if some new object had just been delivered to his house and only quieted down after he combed the dead man's beard. He cursed them all. Them and their mothers, he said, smiling, and examined the corpse lovingly. If it was Tartars that came, he'd have driven them off. But these here were Russians, Ruskis, and Ruskis, they hate to forgive. I know Ruskis. The yardkeeper poured some more sawdust around the deceased, dropped his carpenter's apron, and took me by the hand. Off to father, he muttered squeezing my hand ever tighter. Your father's been looking for you all day. He was afraid you was dead. 
and so Kuzma led me to the tax inspector's house, where my parents had found refuge from the pogrom. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. Thanks for listening.